And there are invisible things that happen, even as the visible things are happening here. We not only believe that we laid our hands on Zay and that he made certain solemn vows, as sacred as the vows of marriage, but that also God watches these things and his angels attend them. Did you know that even in heaven, God keeps a roll book? He's got every one of our names written down in it. I don't know exactly how that works. I'm not saying I do, but it says in the scriptures that, and it's not really beyond our understanding to think that God is actually doing the invisible thing while we do the mere visible aspect of it. And so there really are offices in the church. There are different kinds of elders. There are teaching elders and ruling elders. There are deacons who handle things in the church like the care of the poor and different things that need to be done. And they are spiritual positions. One of the things that we want to be careful of is contemporary society over the last hundred years or so has really reduced the office of deacon. In some churches, all the way down to like, a, you know, high-powered janitor. But that's not what happened in the scriptures. It's not. Those men were called by God. And even they were, had to be elected by the people they served. The apostles said to them, you choose men from among yourselves, men full of the Holy Spirit, and we will ordain them over you. And so that practice has continued all through time and history. And it'll continue long after we're dust. Because the church moves on through history in this way. There's a way that things are supposed to be handled. And the Bible usually tells us what those things are. Today we're going on in the book of Matthew. Now, we had a great time going over the Beatitudes. They're very lovely. We talked last week about chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 13 through 16. And today we're getting into verse 17. Which, I know I say this a lot, but it's a hotly disputed passage. Especially over the last hundred years when a new interpretation of this passage came up. Remember how we talked about this, that there are some people that said even the Beatitudes weren't talking to Christians at all. There was a major new interpretation that came in over the last hundred years that even the entire Sermon on the Mount was not intended to be read or practiced by Christians. Now, because no one had ever said that before, it was at first a shock, but it really became incredibly popular in the American church. Now, it's kind of the thing that whatever's most popular with the American church is almost always wrong. I'm sorry, but, you know, that's what, what's selling at Barnes & Noble in the Christianity section is not usually what's going on in the pulpits or, or from the Bible because they don't really get us, you know. You can't take it in and make it a business and make it an institution and make it industrialized and have it still be Christianity. Christianity is always a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual event that happens among the people of God. It's very difficult to make into a commercial entity, right? But there are entire churches that kind of say things that are foreign to Scripture but have so much Scripture in it that it sounds a lot like Christianity. And they'll tell you things like, God would never have anybody get sick. He wants everybody to be healthy all the time. And he wants you to be rich. And he wants Christians to be powerful and rule everything. And really, you get into the Bible, and there's not much of that there. The you know, there was probably no better Christian than the Apostle Paul, right? He spent a night and a day in the open sea. He spent years in prison. He was beaten with rods. They stoned him at least a few times. He did not have a great time as a Christian. It was not a party atmosphere. But he was holy, and he was preaching the gospel of Christ. And he told them, you know what? 
if you want to follow Christ, what he did was he picked up a cross and he walked up a hill and they killed him there. It's not always a good time, but it is beautiful. Holiness isn't always fun, but it is always right. You know what I mean? So we get to this, and it says, first thing, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus is always preemptive with people's questions. He asks the question for them. He knows what's going on in their hearts and minds, and he goes straight for it. He's not trying to avoid any answer. So he doesn't want them to think something, because there's this thing that he's assuming they will think, right? So if he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I haven't come to abolish them but to fulfill them, what are they obviously thinking? That maybe he came to abolish the law and the prophets, right? The interesting part here is even though he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, there are a lot of major interpretations by major theological dudes with big Coraniums that say that's exactly what he did. What he's really saying here is, we're going to get rid of the law and the prophets. And this is very common, even today. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And then they say this. Yeah, but he said not till all is accomplished. And all is accomplished. Wasn't all accomplished on the cross? Didn't he accomplish it? He said it is finished, right? So obviously all the law and the prophets are gone. Now, that's not what he means, but you can see why people might think something like that. He says, until all is accomplished, but he also says, till heaven and earth pass away, and we're still here. Right? Here's what it would mean if Jesus were really coming to say to get rid of the law and the prophets. Where did God deliver the law? Mount Sinai, right? All the way back into the Old Testament with Moses. Not that the law hadn't been given before then, but God had never given it in such a concrete form as to carve it on tablets of stone with his own finger. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. He wrote it down in ten laws that were representative of the entire moral law of God. Now, we're going to go into a little bit of a discourse here that goes into philosophy and all that floaty stuff I like that nobody else cares about. But, you know, I got the mic. When God was making the world, well, Move back one minute before God made the world. What existed? God, right? But God wasn't there alone, really, because God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a perfect relationship of love. So love and a perfect loving relationship between the persons of the Trinity existed before God made anything. So when God created the world and created the universe from nothing by the word of his all power, he made man in his own image and likeness. And man's expression as the image and likeness of God couldn't do anything. He couldn't give man a law that was against his own internal moral character. And so, of course, man was supposed to love his neighbor as himself. He wasn't supposed to hate his neighbor. What if the first law that God gave Adam was, you know, I just want you to hate everybody and worship the devil and steal a lot. Wouldn't that just be not God? It wouldn't be because the laws of God are not an arbitrary creation. They flow from his own internal nature. Perhaps the most that we ever know God is through the things that he's done in salvation and the giving of his law. When he gives his law, he gives the expression of his internal being, what he's like morally. 
That's who God is. That's what his character is. And you can count on it. And when he gives us love and mercy and grace instead of punishment, then he shows us another aspect of himself. So the entire creation is a revelation of God. It really is. So when he does that, eventually, because of sin, God has to re-give us his law. We were born and made with God's law woven right into the fabric of us so that every human being on earth already knows the law of God, no matter how much we struggle against it. There are even great thinkers like Plato and Aristotle who are really good at, like, ethics and morality sometimes, right? But they had never read the Bible, but just by being created in the image and likeness of God, they were able to apprehend some differences between good and evil. All your friends that aren't Christians, you don't think they're all immoral, right? It's a sad fact <laughs> that sometimes the people we know that aren't Christians seem a little bit more moral than the people that are, right? Thank goodness our salvation isn't based upon our ability to practice our own morality. So we get to the place where the church starts to understand that all ethics, everything right and wrong, the thing that separates us from the animals, that we can distinguish between good and evil. Remember, even the tree was about the knowledge of good and evil. That we can see through the very lens of the creative God that made us and know the difference between good and evil. It's a powerful thing. And the great theologians have usually made this into four different levels. Here's the philosophical part. This comes from Thomas Aquinas. As you know, I have a strained relationship with Thomas Aquinas. He's the second most influential Christian that ever lived, but sometimes he's wrong, and when he's wrong, he's really, really wrong. But this isn't one of those times. So Aquinas said, the first thing is the eternal law, which is the very nature of God himself. There is a law of right and wrong, and it's God's very heart, right? And then in the creation and everything that he made, down to the molecules, all the way through the animals, all the way through the planets, all the way through the universe, there's another manifestation of the law of God, right and wrong, good and evil, that's in the very creation. Did you know that if an animal attacks and kills somebody, that's actually considered in the Bible a moral problem? What does he say to do if somebody has a bull or an ox that kills somebody? He says you have to kill the animal because it has transgressed, it has destroyed the very image of God. So even animals, on a very lesser way, have a moral quality. It also says in the Bible that you must care for your animals. You can't be cruel to them, right? So the thing between human beings and animals is that we're the overseer of everything. We're the highest aspect of the creation. But even the animals themselves are part of God's created order that shows forth his truth. Now, the next one is the law in Scripture, right? That God actually wrote out his laws so we can know right and wrong and good and evil. And you could do a lot worse than to read all those books that everybody skips in the Bible, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to find out what's going on in God's mind, right? I know they're long, they're very easy to skip, but there's fruit in there. We've been reading in pieces, in every service, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It also is a love letter to the law of God, written by David. Just talking about, Lord, your law is so good. When I look into it, it edifies my soul. We should not be afraid of the laws of God. And then the fourth letter, level of the law is the human law. In this country, the highest law is the Constitution of the United States of America. Then we have all of these other laws that are national laws. We get down to the state of Mississippi, and we have the Mississippi state laws, and then we have the jurisdictional laws of perhaps South Haven or the county of DeSoto, right? 
ideally, the eternal law should be the basis for all natural law. And natural law should be the basis for all divine law. And divine law should be the basis for all human laws so that there's no contradiction between them. And I know this is a heavy bite to take, but no human law in any jurisdiction on this planet should be contradictory to God's eternal moral nature. That's the way it came down. Now, when Jesus is saying this, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Which one of those laws do you think he's willing to blow off? Murder? Okay, so murder's bad, right? Murder's evil. Everybody knows murder's evil. Then Jesus comes, and all of a sudden it's cool. Eh, how bad could it be? Or do you think those eternal, unchanging laws cannot be changed by anyone? Here's the hiccup, okay? Even God himself cannot change the eternal, unchanging moral laws. Why? He'd be changing his mind, right? He would think something's bad one day, and he'd think it's good the next. God doesn't change. One of the reasons that we can have hope, one of the reasons that we can cling to God, is he does not change. He's not like a man. He's not changing his mind. He's not flippant. So then he gets down to this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the thing. Remember, in reading a text, what comes before kind of determines the reading of what comes after. This is the way you do it when you get a contract and you have to read it, right? This is the way you read a book. I mean, except for Mark Harris, we all read a book from the beginning to the end, right? <laughs> so if we were thinking, maybe Jesus isn't talking about the moral law here. Maybe he's talking about something else. Let's go on and see a little bit more of this sermon, the most famous sermon, probably the most famous speech ever given in the history of the world, and we have access to it. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So in case there was any question of what he's talking about, he goes right into an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Now we'll have to see if he blows off the law against murder, right? Is he really saying the law has changed? Or does he reemphasize and explain in a deeper way the law against murder than had ever been known even by the Old Testament saints themselves? Is he giving us more law or less law? You've heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, have you heard, have you heard that? You have, because you read it in the Old Testament, right? But I say to you, now he says, but I say to you. So maybe he's going to say, but I say to you, it's okay. Or maybe he's not. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and, therefore you, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him in court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, I know there's a lot in there, but one of the things that we see is he's not taking anything away from the law. 
If anything, he's given the law in a deeper and richer way. Maybe somebody really thought, maybe they had misunderstood Moses and thought, I can hate him in my heart all I want as long as I don't hit him with this stick. I'd like to, but I'm not going to. And Jesus says, no, if you hated him in your heart, you've already broken that law. You might not be liable to civil judgments or to the criminal courts, but already your heart has broken the law of God because God told you to love your neighbor, not to hate them but not hit them with something heavy. It's just not what he was saying. Then he goes on in verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is, again, not taking anything away from the law. It's telling us the deeper meaning of the law. He's filling it up. He's fulfilling the law, and he's the fulfillment of the law, but he doesn't take anything away from it. Then he goes on. He talks about different things like oaths, you know, do not lie. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Retaliation, don't get vengeance. Love your enemies. Give to the needy. Fasting, the Lord's Prayer is in here. How there could be a contemporary interpretation that says the Lord's Prayer is not something for Christians to do, but was only something for Jews to do before the coming of the New Covenant, it's kind of ridiculous. It's the model prayer for all of us. So what we see there is God hasn't taken anything away from his law in the coming of the gospel. The gospel and the law are not like this. They're like this. They're not like this. What I mean by that is, the law is not against the gospel. The law is against people that have broken it. Guess who that is? Y'all. I'll even put myself in there with you. Who has broken the law of God? We all have. So now we have this antithetical relationship to the law of God. The law of God was good. The law of God was holy. The law of God was righteous, and it was spiritual. It's not carnal. The law of God is the expression of God's own moral nature. It's good. But once you break it, once once was good is now against you. Now the very thing that was against us, right, drives us to Christ. It drives us to Christ. So the law that is good in itself is now my enemy. I want to be free from the law, right? Not free from its righteousness, but free from its effect, which is to bring death. The very law that brought life after the fall it brings death, and that's how we get to the gospel, right? When we say that the gospel is that our salvation is by justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any of our good works, what we mean is we're saved apart from the use of the law. The law only condemns us, and Christ did what with the law? He perfectly kept the law in thought, word, and deed. We needed somebody, right? We go all the way back to that first man, Adam, and what we see is Adam was supposed to perfectly keep the law, and he failed, right? And so a second Adam comes, and he's supposed to perfectly keep the law, and he succeeds so that vicariously we can receive his righteousness. We only need one father to do it for us, and Adam failed, and Christ succeeds. So in this, we get into these things, and we'll go a little bit deeper into this one on anger so we can understand it. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, but whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. And people have done some really funny things with this, like saying, really, you know, only one or the other. What the council means is the civil authorities, possibly the church. 
yeah, if you say this, you'll be in danger of somebody filing a charge against you. Perhaps you'll have to go to jail or something like that. But he's saying, you know, uh, you know that's just not your big worry. Your big worry is that if you hate your brother in your heart, you haven't really become true in love, right? So if you're offering your gift at the altar, what did they do in the Old Testament when they, when they sinned before God? They brought their gift to the altar, right? The altar was the place where they killed the animal and had the sacrifice slain so that its blood could be shed so that they could be restored to God. But he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. In other words, no sacrifice is going to help you if your heart is still wrong with your brother. Isn't that heavy? God doesn't like lip service. He's not a lip service God. He doesn't like people that fake it till you make it. He wants it to go all the way down in there. So like, you know, this is kind of our altar area here. If we were in a church a thousand years ago, there'd probably be an altar here. And we would perform a sacrifice on it. But we're Protestants, so we got rid of all that stuff. So when you're offering your, leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's places in the Bible where it says this. Don't come into church and fake it. Don't think you're going to offer a sacrifice to God for your sin while you're still doing the sin, right? While you're still hating him in your heart, you're going to offer a sacrifice to it, but you still hate him. You have to stop hating. You have to stop hating. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. Now, in this analogy, who's the judge? God's the judge. And the judge to the guard. Who's the guard? Probably the angels. And you be put into prison. And prison ain't no good place to be in this analogy. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Truly, I say to you, you will not, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus isn't getting rid of his law. He's not afraid of it. And I know we're afraid of it. We're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to talk about it in churches. We're afraid to talk about it in public. We're afraid to talk about it with neighbors. But really, we should be talking about it all the time because it is beautiful. If you want to see communities come together, if you want to see civilizations transformed, if you want to see persons changed, then you have to talk about the laws of God. Because there's one aspect of the gospel in which they know the grace of Christ, but there's this other aspect where we kind of say, well, what do I do now? Okay, I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel. What do I do now? You know what? The whole rest of the Bible is about what do I do now. It really is. So in this, we're going to go through the rest of these. We've got some very heavy passages coming up over the next few weeks. This is the longest discourse that Jesus does in the entire Bible as far as one whole continuous message. This is the greatest sermon. Why don't we close in prayer? Lord, our God, thank you for this time of getting together in your word. We just pray that you would inflame us with a love for your law, which is to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves that we would die to ourselves and be invigorated by a new power and passion to serve you. When we can serve you, Lord God, we will find it easy to serve others. We'll be able to bow down to them and humble ourselves and 
and do good in ways that we've never been able to do it before. And, and the, the world will be changed by the love of Christ made flesh and blood in his people on earth. We just pray, Lord God, that you would just continue to give us this great honor of serving you. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.